Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. Are you guys excited for the long weekend? Everybody is happy for the long weekend. If you're not, there's something wrong with you, <laughs> right? Time off is a wonderful thing. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. And we're going to be spending our time in verses 1 through 11 this morning with a specific emphasis on uh, verses 1 through 6. And you'll see what I mean by this. Today's message is designed for a couple of purposes. So it's not enough. Uh, as I've grown in my uh, maturity, I've grown in my position, I've grown in my calling in life, it's not enough for a pastor to just come up and just tell you his thought, right? We might as well just listen to all the talking heads on the news or on the internet. It's just another opinion that goes on out there. Um, that does not mean that we are not uh, allowed to have opinions as people, right? Uh, it's just that our opinions are supposed to be derived to the best of our ability from the scriptures. That's what we're called to, right? We're supposed to dig as deep as we can, as much as we can, based on the information that we have, to find that truth in the scripture. Um, I'm going to be using a phrase, I think, a lot lately, or a lot in the near future, that uh, it's a playoff of Paul's statement in the New Testament, but I believe that all things are possible, just not all things are plausible, and that needs to be understood when it comes to biblical interpretation, right? People read the Bible and they're like, this is possible. Yeah, all things are possible. The question is, is it plausible? Does the text support it? Does the Bible support this idea? And so, so today, it's going to be a little bit multifaceted. Uh, I am going to get to a point, and I believe that this point is a very important point in our understanding as Christians. But along the way, my objective is to teach you how to uh, read Scripture a little bit, how to read Scripture, and then how to analyze it uh, for important key principles or facts, okay? So we're going to do that as we go today. But uh, without further ado, it's James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. These are the words of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. This is a great way to start off a three-day weekend. Anyway, okay. So your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. I love these words. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And verse 4 goes on to say, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields... You know that money, the pay of the laborers that mowed your fields uh, and which has been withheld by you, that pay that you didn't even give them, right? It cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That is not Sabbath, that is Sabaoth, that is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. This is a threat, just so you know. So he goes on in 5 and 6 and says, You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. In other words, he's not even pushing back. And you're killing him anyway. It goes on. Now let's look at the change that happens here. Verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren... And it's important that you understand how I just read that. Therefore, be patient, 
Brethren, until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. And I'm going to show you in just a second that the farmer is God and the harvest is you, okay? Be patient. He's waiting for something very important. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Verses 9 and 10. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And finally, verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Okay, a lot of interesting text there, but there are two main sections, and I hope to show you this idea as we go through today. But I want to start with a question. The question is this, is everything in the Bible, is everything in the Bible written to the people of God, i.e. the Jewish people or the Christians? The answer is no. I'm glad you guys are getting this. The answer is no, okay? But... It's not good enough for us to just make a claim, right? We have to substantiate a claim. Uh, A lot of times I'll open up a passage of scripture and I'll say, so who is the author talking to? And repeatedly I'll answer that, the church, the church, the church. Well, James starts off James chapter 1 by saying, I'm talking to the dispersed tribes across uh, the the area, across Pontius, Galatia. I'm, I'm talking to the dispersed tribes here, but the question still remains within that text. Is James always talking to those people? Does James ever break from who he's talking to? Could God have a message for somebody outside of that? I think the answer is yes, and I'm going to present the reasons for that to you. Uh, It's important that we start to learn that when we make a claim, a claim must be substantiated, and unless it's substantiated, it's just your opinion with no backing, okay? It's just that. This is a problem because the church is at odds with each other. The church is constantly warring and fighting with each other over interpretations of things, Because, well, all things are possible, just not all things are plausible, right? And so people have an idea or an explanation or an an expression of what they think the truth is, but they have no information to back it up. So in this instance, what I'm going to do is I'm going to propose to you that there's actually a different audience in verses 1 through 6 in James, but we've got to make the case... We've got to make the case first that God's word is not just written to his people or the Jews or the Christians, okay? So here's the claim that the the scripture includes messages to those outside of God's covenant promises, and here is the proof. Let's start with Ezekiel chapter 25. Ezekiel chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. We're going to go to the Old Testament because, well, we look at that and say that's all written to the Jewish people. But it's not, okay? So Ezekiel 25, 1 through 3, here's what the prophet uh, is told to do. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, Ezekiel is the number one person in the Bible referred to as the son of man, okay? Use that name repeatedly throughout the book, right? Son of man, set your face towards the son of Ammon, the sons of Ammon, and prophesy against them, 
Okay? And then he gives them the content of the prophecy. He says, not only do I want you to prophesy against them, but here's what I want you to say, and it goes on. Now, uh, he, he, tells them, he tells them all kinds of different things that he wants them to prophesy. But this idea goes on from Ezekiel 25 all the way through chapter 32. God tells the prophet to speak to these different people. In Ezekiel 29, it says this, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. And then what happens in the prophecy next is all about uh, what God wants to say to them. And guess what, guys? This is all uh, confined within a book or a letter that was written by a prophet to God's people? Not always. Not always. Very important. Isaiah does the same thing. We can see this in the next piece, Isaiah 13, 1 and 2. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them. I want you to talk to them, right? Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. So, so what we've seen, what we're doing is we're making a claim. All the things written in the Bible are not necessarily written to the people of God, or uh, whether it be Jew or uh, Christian, okay? But all of the things in the Scripture are definitely written to humanity. They're written to God's image bearers. This is a really important truth. So the question then comes back to James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and that is, who in the world is James talking to? Here's my second claim, which I will back up with evidence. My second claim is that James is talking to rich oppressors. He is not talking to rich Christians. He is not talking to rich Christians, but rather he's talking to rich oppressors, okay? See, if we say that Christians are the... the, the um, if we say that Christians are the audience to which James is wanting to talk here, we have some serious issues that we have to run through when it comes to, or even contradictions that we have to deal with when it comes to how God communicates to his people. Because here's one of the identifying factors, one of the key factors of these six verses. There is absolutely no grace in these six verses. No grace whatsoever. It's brutal, right? It's God punching people right in the nose through James. Now, James punches Christians in the nose, and that's pretty awesome, but he always does so with this uh, thing attached to it, repent. I want you to repent. I want you to turn. I want you to come back to me, okay? But in these six verses, that's not there, and it's brutal, right? He says, by the way, not only are your riches going to burn up, but so are you. Smile. Right? And you're looking at it going, okay, I don't know, I'm not sure about this Jesus thing. Yeah, he ain't talking to you, right? He's not, he's not being kind to you in this. But if we say that the scripture is talking to non-Christians, again, we still have to substantiate it. We've substantiated it with one claim, which is that there's no offer of mercy and there's no call to repentance. But let's go even further with this. Uh, James uses a term throughout his book that he uses a lot. Actually, he uses it 28 times, and I've not used every reference here, but he uses the term 28 times. The reference, or the word, is the word for brother. 
or brethren, okay? Here's what James says to the Christians throughout his work. This is uh, chapter 1, verses 2, verse 16, and verse 19. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. I want you to say those things with me, the highlighted words with me, so that we can all kind of engage with this. The next one, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Okay, so the brethren uh, can be deceived, but he's warning them against it. He's saying, please be careful. Verse 19, this you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Awesome. So, so not only uh, is there this uh, closeness because they're brothers, uh, but there's also an instruction that's given to them. Notice the contrast of verses 1 through 6. There's no instruction given. It's just you're dead. <laughs> Yippee. Okay, so let's go to James chapter 2, verses 1, 5, and 14. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So, okay, so please refrain from this idea that because I'm saved, I'm the special one and everybody else in this world is not. You, you can't do that, right? Verse 5 goes on. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Then finally, verse 14 here. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? Okay, let's move on to chapter 3, verses 1, 10, and 12. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. We talked a lot about this on the week we dealt with uh, this particular passage. I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing, my Brethren, these things ought not to be this way. It shouldn't be a, a, a double-minded or a double-action people. We should be single-minded, single-focused. Finally, verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Rhetorical question that in the Greek you would understand that it is written with the only response possible to be in the negative. No, it can't happen this way. Nor can salt water produce fresh. Okay, one reference in chapter 4 goes into this. It's chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And Jacob did a bang-up job last week on this particular section. I encourage you to listen to that as well. So then all of a sudden, we get into chapter 5, and here again is what we hear, starting at verse 1. Come now, you rich. What's missing right there? Brother, <laughs> right? All of a sudden, it just changed. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Again, that right there is, it's the last days you've stored up your treasure, there ain't nothing else. 
Wow, what a powerful thing. And then we have another hidden proof for this idea jammed into verse 4. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies of heaven. Guess who belongs to the armies of heaven? The brothers in Christ, the sisters in Christ. Guess who does not? Those who aren't. And God's armies and God's hosts, Thessalonians and Revelation, say that we will be coming with the hosts of heaven. What a powerful truth. We will be coming with the hosts of heaven. We're a part of the Lord of Sabaoth's army, his people. This is an amazing idea. Well, these people are not there. The army's coming for them. Verse 5, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist. So the idea here is that God is condemning a group of people. Now we're going to get to why here in a second. But again, what we're focused on right now is biblical interpretation and how we get to an idea, okay? We have six verses, and it's really easy to jump back to chapter 1, verse 1, and say God is talking through James to the people of God, period. It's not a faithful way to do it. You have to look at the context. You have to look at uh, the common words. You have to look at things that repeat, and you have to be extremely careful And you can come up with a couple explanations, but you have to have proof for those explanations. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? This is important because of what we would do with this interpretation if it's not taken correctly. So if we look at verses 1 through 6 as a message to God's church, God is contradicting himself. And here's the contradiction. Romans 8.1. What's it say? Romans 8.1 will be on the screen here in a second. But Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me share with you a really important truth that you need to know as you walk out your Christian life. If you read the scripture, if you are praying and you feel condemnation, You are not reading accurately, and you are not hearing the voice of the Lord. Do you hear me? You can feel conviction all day long, (laughs) and you probably ought to feel it more. I'm just throwing that out there to you, right? But if you are praying or you are reading and you feel condemned, you are reading and hearing incorrectly. Please, church, I'm going to step it even further to shoot myself in the foot here. If you are listening to a message and you hear condemnation, I'm preaching wrong. Or you're mishearing, (laughs) right? But it's important. We are not here to dole out condemnation for one another when the scripture itself says, if you're in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. So because there's no condemnation, verses 1 through 6 would be a giant contradiction. We would have a drastic problem, wouldn't we? All of a sudden, he's like, hey, you're a part of me, but I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. 
because I just don't like you now, right? So that's one important thing. The second thing is interpretation matters because if we don't get the interpretation right, we're going to even mislabel the people within the people group we've put them in. These are non-believers, but we have to understand, what does the Bible mean by rich? What does the Bible mean by rich? The Bible surely doesn't mean a person with more money than another person, right? All of life is a spectrum. Uh, all of life is, you know, is on this giant spectrum. And we as Americans, my dad brought this up to me this week, and it's just a really important truth, right? We represent like 3 or 4% of the world's population, and yet we hold 80% of the wealth, right? Okay, so on the spectrum, are we not richer than the rest of the world? If we're richer than the rest of the world, verses 1 through 6 says we're all going to hell because we're rich and shame on us. That's not what rich means in the Bible, right? That's not what the scripture is talking about. God, no matter what your political leanings are, God does not have a problem with rich people. He has a problem with oppressive people. That happens to come from rich people more often, I think, because of power, Okay, because of power. But the scripture is clear oppressors come in every make and model of people, right? So it can be rich oppressors, it can even be poor servant oppressors. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us. Matthew 18, 21 through 25 is a story of an unmerciful servant. And when he's forgiven, he doesn't want to forgive his fellow servants. So what does he do? He oppresses them. And what is the master's statement to him? What does the master do to this individual who is unwilling to show mercy the way he was shown mercy? He says, you're out. Why? Because the Bible's clear. If you are not a forgiving person, you will not be forgiven. If you are not a merciful person, you will not reap the benefits of the mercy which was bestowed on all mankind on the cross. You have forfeited that, you have rejected it, you've pushed against it in every way. You see, the implications of reading something correctly are that we make more sense of the Bible. And truth be told, we live in a very skeptical culture. We live in a skeptical culture that is going to criticize everything that is in the scriptures. And you know what I say we do? Let them do it. Let them do it. You know why? Because that truth doesn't fade. That truth will not falter. That truth simply needs to be understood correctly. We have more access than ever before. Dr. Michael Heiser just recently posted this. We have more access than ever before to the, to the scripture, to the text, to the uh, surrounding writings that inform the context of the Bible. We have more access to this stuff than ever before, which means one really important thing. We can understand the Bible better and better and better and better as we study it. Which means we will be able to answer the skeptics' opinions and ideas against the Scripture better and better and better and better if we're not lazy. <laughs> and that's the problem, right? Right? And it'll really be important if the pastor, if the leaders, if the teachers of the church will equip you correctly to answer the questions. Right? 
Here's what's happened in the church for too long. And I apologize for being a part of it. But here's what's happened in the church for too long. We jump in, we read a text, we have a particular persuasion, we have a particular tradition, grandma told us something about it, we have a feeling that's attached to it, and boy, we ain't moving to the right or to the left. And so what we do is we jump up and we preach that as absolute gospel, absolute truth. Sometimes it is. Yes, we win by flipping a coin, (laughs) right? Sometimes it's true, but sometimes it's not. And then all of a sudden, you guys, I did this too, you grow up and you face hard times in life. Or you face challenging questions. And guess what happens? The pastor's answer is dumb. It's insufficient. It doesn't help you. Because somebody with a better argument, all things are possible, church. (laughs) Not all things are plausible. And sadly, even the secular world understands things that are even more plausible than we understand at times. Because, well, they use their brains. (laughs) Okay? We have somehow disengaged our brains to walk after Jesus. That's not what he called us to do. Renew your mind every day. Your brain should be fully engaged in what is happening. But the faith I want to rest you in is that if you'll engage your brain in what God's word says, it won't falter, it won't fail, it just has to be understood correctly. Amen? Amen? So, so we have to do a better job as pastors, as teachers. And that means not just jumping up and telling you what we think. Here's what the Bible says about X, Y, and Z. We can't do it anymore. Here's what we have to do. We have to say, here is what the Bible says as I understand it, and here's how I got there. And then you get to respond and go, I think that's bunk. And I get to go, let's have coffee, because I like talking bunk, right? Let's have coffee. Let's sit down and let's talk about these things. That is going to help. The church is in desperate need of something that is... um, Oh, it's sad right now. It is very sad right now. The church is in desperate need of a, um, a revival of, not blanket revival. <laughs> uh, the church is alive, church. But the church needs a revival of rigorous debate. Can you say this with me? I'm going to say it first and I want you to say it back to me. The word argue is not a four-letter word. Can you say that with me? Come on. The word argue is not a four-letter word. And for all of you who panic when people are arguing, you need tougher skin. The church, especially the Jewish uh, side of all of this, for eons of time, spent time in a, in a principle called Midrash, where, uh, where these rabbis would get together and they would talk and debate and they would argue And they'd fight over the text of Scripture. And man, if you read some of these, because you can find droves of these things, right? If you read some of these things, you're like, dang, that guy's brutal. Or, whoa, I don't know that I can say that to my friend or whatever. But we need to get back to this because it creates healthy uh, life inside of God's community. We begin to be able to talk instead of hide away. Guys, this is true of all of you, I believe it's true of all of you, when it comes to politics. 
you've grown so tired and so weary of being labeled a kook or crazy or whatever that your tendency is, let's just be quiet. It's between me and God. It's my thing, whatever. How many of you would say I agree with that? I keep quiet because I don't want to be picked on, okay? Here's the sad thing. The world's moving that way when it comes to faith. And you're not going to be able to talk about nothing, right? You're not going to be able to talk about anything. <laughs> I'll use words correctly someday. But the idea here is you're not, you're not going to be able to talk because you're going to go, I don't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, here's the deal. Not only will you not ruffle any feathers, but you won't make any advancements for the kingdom. Nobody's going to be engaging with truth anymore. We need to get back on this place of healthy debate and without soft skin that we don't feel like everybody's attacking us, everybody thinks we're a heretic, everybody thinks we're running away from Jesus, or everybody thinks we're not a brother in Christ. This is hooey, hooey, and we need to be more careful about it. But we need to be a people who get back to rigorous debate. In order to do that, we are going to have to follow the principles of reading the text of Scripture, understanding that all things might be possible, but not all things in the text are plausible, and then we need to find proofs for our claims. Okay? And then we have to practice humility. Because when we face somebody who has more proofs for their claim... You know what you ought to do? You ought to change your mind. You ought to change your mind. The church has split and fractured into so many denominations and so many broken places because people go, I see your argument, but I'm not moving. Right? I see your argument. I don't care. That, by the way, that's not rigorous debate. <laughs> that's just stubbornness. And we've got rigorous stubbornness in the world, okay? But we need to make sure we can have the conversations. And then when we're faced with proofs that absolutely outweigh our own, we need to yield. We need to yield. In this uh, coming year, well, in the second half of this year, um, I have no idea what day it is. It's just that bad, right? In the second half of this year, I'm going to be taking up a very, very critical subject. And that subject has to do with women in ministry, in leadership, and their call. And guess what? Nathan has changed his mind. <gasps> don't clap. You don't even know what I changed my mind in. You have no idea what I changed my mind in. Listen to you guys being biased. And all, you're like, yes, finally I'll do what I want. No. Anyway, I've changed my mind and I want you to understand why I've changed my mind. Because I fought harder with the scripture. I've dug deeper. I've listened to many, many, many people. And I realized my argument was possible. It just wasn't as plausible right? This is really important, church. I have done this in so many areas of my life, and this is a promise that I make to you. This is a promise that I've always had, and probably nobody knows this um, about me probably as well, uh, I would say, than Sarah does, and that is, I've not always held the same positions in my Christian life. I have held them, I have seen better ways, and I have changed those positions. I would hope as a congregation member of this church, you have seen those when they have shifted. 
right? They don't have to be like, oh, come to Jesus moments, right? They don't always have to be that. It just sometimes just has to be a, this is crazy. We've got to change our opinion. We've got to change our positions on these things. So I'm going to be tackling that, and I know that that's encouraging to some, although you still don't even know what I changed, but it is going to be encouraging. It's going to be a, a, a powerful time when we spend our time in that. What we have to do, church, is we have to read the text of Scripture, and we have to start being critical. And I don't mean critical at like a skeptic is critical. I mean critical in saying, what does this mean, and how can I know that I know that I know it means these particular things? So let me end this way, and let me show you the whole principle of what is going on in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to have you put verse 7 back up there, Sarah. Verse 7, and we're going to go through 11. Therefore be patient, brethren. Now, now who is James talking to? Beyond a shadow of a doubt, he's talking to Christians. He says, until the coming of the Lord. How long do we have to be patient? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Lord, what are you doing? Okay. Lord, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Hold on, we're going to see it. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. God is not slow as some count slowness. He is patient, wanting that none should perish, but that all come to everlasting life. Amen? Okay. So he's saying, be patient. Wait for the coming of the Lord. Look at what verse 9 says. Do not complain, brethren. Can you just say that with me? Do not complain, brethren. Every church has this thing on their sign like ours, right? All things in, for, and through Christ, right? We're going to put this on our sign. Do not complain, brethren. <laughs> I like this one. Much better. <laughs> I just got an amen from Barney. It makes me so happy. Anyway, do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is not for you. The judge is not standing right at the door for you. The judge is standing at the door to enact justice on those who have done wrong and oppressed God's people. And he is encouraging the church. Rest. The judge is at the door. Do you know that when you read through the Psalms and when you read through Proverbs, when it talks about judgment, it is positive? It's positive. We talk about judgment, we say, don't judge. It's negative. We talk about a judge and we go, uh-oh, what did he do wrong? Right? Everybody seems to, in the Old Testament, say, I want a judge. I need somebody to, uh, to make sure my case is heard. Guys, justice is beautiful. Justice is beautiful, but you don't have to worry. The judge is at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, endure, because judgment is coming. Justice is on its way for you, for me, for everybody, right? Suffering and patience. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And finally, verse 11, it says this, but above all, brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your, let your yes be yes and let your no be no so that you may not fall under judgment. Context. You have a bunch of Christians that are being pressed by rich oppressors. Could be any kind of oppressor out there, but it is specifically rich oppressors here. And the tendency of Christians and the tendency of you and I is to get mad. Because how many of you just love oppression? Huh, no hands went up, right? 
Okay? Nobody loves to be oppressed. Nobody loves to be picked on. But it still has an effect on us, doesn't it? still hurts like you wouldn't believe. And so what our reaction is, is to get mad. Sometimes we get mad with each other for no reason. Do you notice this? Right? You had a bad day at work and your wife's to blame? <laughs> you stupid. Right? Okay. So we, we got a problem here. You, you've had a bad day at work and what happens? You take it out on your kids. Guys, I've done this. I've done this. And so James says, whoa, hold on. I know you're being oppressed. I know it's a hard day. I know it's bad stuff. But the judge is coming. He's got you. What's your instruction? Yeah, you heard me, Sam. Anyway, that's right, right? He says, be patient. He says, calm down. He says, no, I've got you inside of all of this. You see, James 1, uh, 5, 1 through 11 is a message of hope. It is a message of hope. Those who oppress us, God will take care of. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Amen? Vengeance is mine. What is our responsibility? Patience. Bearing the fruit that the scripture said. Back to verse 7. Back to verse 7. I love this idea. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. But it's going to take the early and the latter rains to get that produce. You know what the farmer is doing? He is sowing the seed of his spirit inside of his people. And you know what it produces? It produces fruit. And that fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And guess what? You can't get patience unless it sucks. You can't endure to the end. If it's not hard, you're not enduring. You're just sailing to the end, right? You see, God put something in you that is intended to produce fruit and it's going to take some time to produce it. Here's what you and I need to do. The message of a right understanding of a text is this. God wants us to be patient no matter what we're going through because he's doing something. Amen? He's doing something. He's doing something in you. He's doing something in me. Don't worry so much about me unless you see something glaring. I won't worry so much about you unless I see something glaring because I need to be as patient as my heavenly father knowing he's doing something in you. Amen? It's amazing how this works. So as we move forward, we're going to continue to understand God's word. We're going to continue to dig into it. But our challenge is going to be, what is not only the most possible answer, but the most plausible answer? We need to figure out what it says. That's going to come with defining terms better, and that would be according to what the Bible says. That's going to be fighting for understanding. That's going to be taking consideration to another person's viewpoint, but pushing back against it. All of this is a part of what we're doing. Amen? So, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 is a message of hope. You and I just need to be patient. God's up to something.